Okay, so which of the following defines the kind of freedom that God has? B. B. B and C. Yeah, I probably didn't define D in the notes. I think we, we talked about it aloud. I suggested that absolute freedom is sort of a freedom to do anything at all. And no one really has the freedom to do anything at all. God doesn't have the freedom to violate his own nature and decree and character. So, B fits. He's he's able to choose what he wants to do. So he chooses from from the, the with the dom- most dominant impulse of his own nature, and then he is also sovereign in that nobody can stop him. So. That's a that's a we're not going to see that in the next point. We suggested here that this idea of freedom of indifference, which a lot of people think when they think of freedom of the will, I've had some conversations with some relatives of mine that you know I, I say yeah the man has freedom he chooses freely to to uh, reject God, and they say well that's not freedom because it's only freedom if he has the choice to. Choose God, choose God too, and I'm like, well, that's a kind of freedom, but it's it's arguable that that exists anywhere. I don't think it does. So B and C for number one, and then number two, which of the following describes the freedom that man has? B only. So he's not sovereign. And then uh, number three here, God has passions. False, false. false, at least by the definitions that we supplied in the notes here. Uh, we suggested that affections, inclinations, emotions are things that all persons have, uh, but passions—the idea that you can, that God can be wrought upon by His creatures so as to do something He otherwise would not have done—that uh, is, He can be surprised by His own creatures. Uh, and uh, coerced thereby into doing something he wouldn't have planned. Uh, no, he does not have passions in that sense, as as we do. We have passions, and I think largely because we're not omniscient. We don't know everything. We can get surprised. God's never surprised, and for that reason, he's he has no passions. Okay? That becomes important for us when we talk about uh, the... Uh, we, yeah, we talked about this, I think, last week. <clears throat> process theism or open theism the idea that God is not fixed on what he plans to do, he's just sort of open uh, to, to change along the way okay so a fairly quick review to from last week, any final thoughts on what we talked about, unanswered questions that you have remaining if not, then, we're going to start in tonight talking about the attributes of God, and we'll spend a good number of weeks on this, because this is really the heart and soul of, of the, the, the discussion here. We've got to define them first, and then sort of categorize them, and then start going through them one by one. Okay, uh, Attributes of God are defined here as those unique qualities and perfections that inhere in and manifest the being or essence of God. So what do I mean? That those those two words inhere in and manifest are probably the critical words here that we have to define. Those other words make pretty good sense. But what do I mean by inhere in? That is 
what we're saying is that the attributes of God together, you know, interrelate and interconnect and supply then what God is. Um, again, it's, I think I said this earlier that ad, attributes, uh, if you can think in terms of attributes are more like nouns than they are adjectives. Um, doesn't work in every, at every, at every level, but, but, uh, I think it works a lot of the time. So rather than saying that God is true, that is, he's a God of integrity and faithfulness, uh, we also say that he is truth, that is, he is, he is the essence of what it means to be true. He establishes truth in his own self and is consistent with himself. That's what it means for him to be, in, have, be have integrity. Same with love. We, we say that God is loving, and it's true, of course, and that would be an adjective. We also say that God is love. That is, he's the perfect expression of love. And, and so that, that's what we mean by in here in, and then th- that they manifest the di- divine being is that, you know, since God is invisible, cannot be seen, uh, how do we know what he is like? Well, his attributes are the manifestation of who he is. We know who he is by the attributes that he has and exhibits. So uh, they're a little bit more beefy of a definition than just adjectives. We describe each other tall, you know, skinny, bald, fat, whatever. Uh, but but the attributes are more than that. They're, they're more than just adjectives that we throw at, uh, at, at someone with substance. They actually make up the substance of what God is. Okay? There's a number of ways to classify the attributes. Uh, theologians are all over the map on this. I don't want to spend a lot of time in here, but... Uh, uh, let's look at some of the options. Some talk about communicable and incommunicable attributes, by which is meant that God actually shares some of his attributes with us, whereas others he does not. Uh, so, for instance, the moral attributes, you know, that God is love. We also are to be loving, you know, you know, or, or holy uh, you know that's that's what Leviticus and Peter both say: "Be holy, because I am holy." So there's the attribute that he has in an, in an infinite sense. But where to, as much as lies within us as finite beings, uh, exhibit holiness ourselves. So and and those attributes would be called communicable because he shares them, he communicates them with us, he shares them with us. Whereas attributes such as omnipresence, for instance, is something that he holds uniquely. He's the only being that is everywhere present, and there's really no sense in which he shares that with us. So uh, so that that's how some would uh, distinguish that. Uh, some of the tension there is that God never really shares any of his attributes with us, at least in a, certainly not in a quantitative sense. Uh, but I think also in a qualitative sense, the, what we exhibit as holiness and love is only analogically related to what God's holiness and love are. We're not, we're not, we don't have a little piece of love or a little piece of holiness. We're at best mimicking God. We're not actually exhibiting the attributes that He has. Uh, I think that's 
you know, we're, we're risking uh, breaking the creator-creature distinction there. Some speak in terms of natural attributes and moral attributes. Basically, breaks down on the same lines. Uh, natural attributes are not shared, where moral attributes are. And this is a little bit arbitrary, because in some sense... All the attributes of God are morally requisite of him, uh, and he holds them all naturally. So there's, there's a sense in which those words you know, don't communicate everything that we want them to do. Uh, another way of breaking it down, again, falling down the same lines here, the attributes of greatness and goodness. Uh, this is where Dr. McCune comes down, also Millard Erickson. Uh uh, uh, strong speaks in terms of absolute uh, uh, attributes versus voluntary attributes. This is going to be an interesting one. There's there's a sense in which we can say, well, none of the attributes are voluntary for God. He has to be what he is. Uh, at the same time, we're going to find, this is one of the tensions we have with the attributes, is that God is not always infinite in the expression of his attributes. Uh, f- for instance, we could, we could say, is God infinitely loving? And probably your gut response is, well, yeah, God's infinitely everything, right? But then we ask, okay, so does God love all people equally? And you might even still say yes, but then, you know, you, ask, you, you, you penetrate a little bit further, okay, so does... Did God elect everyone? Did God atone for everyone's sin? Did God choose everyone? Does does the same manifestation manifestation of God come equally from God to all people without without exception? And our answer is going to be, well, no. He doesn't. So so that's going to be a problem for us that we're going to have to, 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 to work out. Uh, so, so some of these attributes, there does seem to be a voluntary expression of, and in some senses, a withholding of, and we're going to have to work through that. Uh, so, uh, this this is this is a fascinating way of breaking down the attributes. It's, I'm not sure it's my favorite, but uh, but it, it's an interesting one. Um, John Frame talks about the attributes of power, knowledge, and goodness. Breaks them down in, into three realms. Uh, so, yeah, so he basically breaks this down according to the uh, to the uh, the three major categories of philosophy. So, power would be his his attributes of his his ontological attributes, knowledge his epistemological attributes, and goodness his ethical attributes. So that's how he breaks it down. I'm actually going to use the the one just above that uh, that uh, Robert Raymond uh, put me on to, uh, but also Mort Smith and and Grudem. I have him down here twice because uh, he's he, he's not always consistent in how he he actually sort of weaves both of these approaches together. Uh, basically, what we have here is the idea that there are summary attributes that that uh, qualify all the rest of them, and then the transcendent ones would probably correspond most uh, most with the natural attributes of God. These ones that God has independently of us and doesn't share them in any sense. He holds them at a distance. So transcendent attributes. And then there's imminent attributes, the ones that that he that we know because he relates to us with them. 
such as love and goodness, the moral attributes. So that's that's the outline we're going to use. Any one of these uh, classifications would probably work. They all have their weaknesses, they all have their strengths. Uh, but uh, we'll probably we're going to go with this this one that uh, Raymond that's in the in the reading that you have. Okay, the reason it's so difficult here is because God is actually unitary. Uh, so we sometimes talk about the simplicity of God. None of God's attributes can rightly be discuss- be discussed in isolation from the rest. They all qualify each other. So when God is Loving, he's holy in his expression of love, uh, and even as he is holy, he's loving in his expressions of holiness. And so, so all of these attributes qualify each other and inform each other in such a way that's hard to, you know, classify them in lists because they're, they're they all interrelate, intertwine, and and affect each other. Um, so there's a tight web here of mutually intersecting qualities so interconnected that the parts can scarcely be distinguished in the whole. Uh, to say that God is what his attributes are is not to say that God is comprised or 12, of 12 or 14 items on a list, but rather he's a unique conflation of all of these attributes together. But of course, if God is what his attributes are and that all of the attributes are interconnecting, it makes for a difficult outline. <laughs> so, so we're gonna we're gonna go with that uh, that three part outline that uh, Raymond supplied for us. Thoughts on that? Yeah. And I can't remember the context here. Maybe you could help, but it seemed like I read sometimes you read criticisms. I don't know if it's reformed guys, but you read this criticism. <laughs> I don't know the context now, but they'll say, "Well, this denies the simplicity of God." You ever, you ever see that? They'll yeah. be criticizing somebody and say, well, this is a problem with this because it denies the simplicity, but now I can't remember what what, right. what, what the big what the big deal is in there. I can't remember what they're... Well, re- most recently that's come up in the Trin- Trinitarian discussions, that if you, if, you, if you have this, have within the Trinity this hierarchy, okay. then that denies the simplicity right. of God. Uh, but it, but it can be used also if you if you elevate one yeah. attribute to a place of exclusiveness that well either God has to be holy or he has to be love one or the other because they're conflicting well that breaks up the you, you, that breaks up the simplicity of God they all harmonize and so that's what that, about that issue about a governing attribute you going to get we're going to get to that yep well we used to have a question on we used to, at the seminary, we used to have, when you went through, mm-hmm. we had the senior document exam, seniors graduating, and we had these series of questions, some of them were tricky questions. <laughs> and I remember one of them was, is there a moral, is there a governing attribute of God? You know? And I just can't remember what all the, all the discussions but, but anyway, I'm thinking of the simplicity, but you'll get to it. Yeah, yeah, we'll talk about that. Well, simplicity is not usually thought of as an attribute per se. It's no, no, it denies something about his character. He's simple. And he's a character. Right. It, well, it's, it's, being, being. yeah, he, he, yeah, he's not subject. He's, he's, it's when when we're talking about simplicity, it's God without parts. Yeah. So you can't tease out the parts of Jesus, God, and you know, and sort of separate them from one another, and 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 think of them, you know, exclusively of the rest of him. They all have to be thought of as in harmony with one another. Well, that's just hard to do in a class, but 
we do our best. So, what attributes are we going to look at? Well, the summary attributes, or what Raymond calls transcendent adjectives. These are these are qualifiers of all the rest of the attributes, so that we can say God is independent, infinite, and immutable with respect to his being. God is independent, infinite, immutable with respect to his knowledge, and so on and so forth. So there's six realms in which God is independent, infinite, and immutable with respect to. Okay, uh, so, so that's how we're going to, to look at these. The natural realms, uh, you can see I've broken down according to ontology, epistemology, uh, and such. So his being, that is his om- omnipresence, his relationship to space, and then his relationship to time, which Paul has some interest in, he was mentioning tonight. His knowledge, which means he knows all things, and he is also all wise, omnisapiens. And then in the realm of power, he is omnipotent. Then we'll also talk about the moral realms of holiness, under which are subsumed his righteousness and justice. Uh, Then truth, under which is subsumed his faithfulness or integrity. And then his goodness, under which are subsumed his love, mercy, and grace. So that's where we're going over the next several weeks. Okay? We'll start here then with the summary attributes of God, or the transcendent attributes of God, called this way because they properly stand apart as qualifiers of all the rest of the attributes. So we're going to start here with the independence of God, or sometimes called his aseity. Uh, it's simply a, a Latin word put with I-T-Y put on. So, say he is of himself. Uh, ah, of, say, self. So he's of himself, and you put I-T-Y on it, and you make it an English word. It's a sort of a strange word there. Okay, so the aseity of God, or the uh, independence or self-existence of God. What, do we, what we mean by this here is that uh, God is absolutely necess- in his in his absolutely necessary being and sovereignty are sourced wholly in himself. Okay, so he has no has no needs. He's independent. He he needs he needs nothing outside of himself, um, and uh, so he is he is absolute sovereignty. So both of these ideas are included here in independent. So. God exists necessarily, not by an act of his will. God didn't make himself. He didn't cause himself. But because his nature makes him necessary. So he's uncaused. And he cannot be other than what he is. He simply is. It means also that he is non-contingent. That there are there are no contingencies with God. There is There are, there's, there are no true possibilities... Uh, with the realm of God, that it might be one way or another, that there's a there's a there's a genuine possibility. There's no contingencies with God. Uh, there's nothing outside of Him that can make Him other than what He is. And again, this is that whole idea of impassibility. Doesn't mean He has no emotions, of course, or doesn't respond to His creatures, but that no creature of His can force His hand or make him do something other than what he wanted to do uh, prior to meeting that creature. 
So God can't be affected by the free acts of his creatures because while free, their actions are not free from external causation and are not truly independent. So God alone is independent. There can be only one independent being. Uh, if he were to interact with another independent being, one would immediately uh, be... Uh, one would assume priority over the other. Uh, so, so he's so he's non-contingent. He's impassable, um, and he alone is free or sovereign. So again, that's the idea of sovereignty: that he is is free without any constraint or restraint, other than himself. So, a biblical proof. We already talked about the name of God. Uh, the uh, this word Yahweh, which means the being one, the one who is, I think is a sort of a testimony here to the aseity of God. It's really reflected in uh, this uh, when Moses comes and asks, who is it that I shall say has sent me? Uh, when Pharaoh inquires, well, you say that I am that I am. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm the God who is. I'm <laughs> There's really no other way to understand me. I'm just the necessary God of gods. I'm, I'm, I, I am. Okay. He's absolutely necessary, a static being. He's transcendent over, independent of, distinct from, and indispensable to all other beings. And that's what that's what God is, and that's I think sort of wrapped up in that name that He supplies for Himself. I am what I am, or or that name Yahweh. Okay. Acts 17, 24, and 25, I think, reflect this as well. Uh, the God who made the world and everything in it is not is the, is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. And he isn't served by human hands as though he needs something. That was the uh, common understanding of temples and sacrifices there. It was... That's the Areopagus address here. So there's Paul in the Areopagus and all these, all these temples and and constant sacrifices going on. And it's where all the all the gods were sort of collected, and it ended up being something of a uh, a point of, of of sort of a tense unity within the uh, Roman Empire. You, 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 your people group got conquered, and their god got put into the pantheon, and it was. Was a way of saying you belong here, and so they really—that's—that's uh, that's what was there. And so they had all these temples, these uh, constant sacrifices going on, and and Paul is contrasting God to these other gods because the, uh, the, these temples were there to house the gods, and uh, the sacrifices were there to feed the gods, and and the great concern is that the gods would get angry if they were ignored. Uh, in fact, there's that, you know, that, remember there's that, that idol to the unknown god there that's described. There is actually, a, there was actually some, a discovery here made, uh, just a few years ago, maybe, maybe a dozen years ago, of, uh, of, of, of the account, why, why those, why those, uh, this, this idol is there. Apparently there was a, there was a, uh, plague in Athens and uh, they quickly ran and sacrificed to all those gods to assuage them, appease them and the plague continued 
And so they figured there must be some god, an unknown god that we don't know about, that's angry with us, and he's he's not he feels neglected, so he's he's punishing us. So they so they they cleared out the whole Areopagus ad, uh, uh, um, area there and let a herd of sheep into there, and they they observed wherever the sheep sat down, uh, they they put up an idol and said to the unknown god, made a sacrifice. And hoped that uh, by doing this, they would they would uh, appease this this angry god who had plagued the Athenian city there. And lo and behold, the plague stops. And so they keep these they, they keep these idols there in rather odd locations uh, because one of them apparently was the right one. And so they want to you know keep this unknown God happy by feeding him routinely by sacrificing to him so and and so the, the point here is that God is not like that he doesn't need to be fed he doesn't need he doesn't need anything and he doesn't need to be housed okay so he doesn't live in temples built by hands and he's not served by hand, human hands as though he needs something because he's the one who gives all men life and breath and everything else his life is not sustained by eating. He actually supplies life and health, breath and everything else, because it's in him that we live and move and have our being. So again, this statement here of the independence of God. A number of passages here that speak to uh, uh, the independence of God in in a number of of arenas. I think Psalm 115.3, God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. If I were hungry, would I tell you? No, because the cattle on a thousand hills are mine. If I got hungry, I would just grab one and eat it. Um, not that he is, but uh, that's that's his, that's the statement made there. Uh, no one can stay his hand, Daniel 4.35, or say to him, what are you doing? And, and so on and so forth. There's a number of these in here. What are the implications here? Well, by virtue of his aseity, God is necessarily Lord and possessor of all that he has created. The earth is the Lord's, everything in it, the world and all who live in it. So he owns everything. Everything that creatures are and have come from God. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, who does not change, like shifting shadows. Okay, so the implication here is not only does God own everything, including us, uh, everything that we have is not really ours, belongs to God. When we give to God, we give back only what he has first given to us. In the words of Augustine, other famous words he makes here, statement he makes, when God crowns our merits, he is crowning his own gifts in us because we are stewards of the manifold grace of God. So the manifold grace of God is everything good that we have comes to us as a stewardship uh, from God. And so anything that we give back to him, which we are enjoying to do, uh, we're, we're not really not really uh, doing something that will uh, that is meritorious here, that will... Uh, it, we're simply giving him something that it's already his. If he wants it, he can take it at any time. And so God owes nothing to anyone. Who is a claim against me that I must pay? Everything under heaven belongs to me. Okay, you can't sue God. Because he owns everything. So, it's it's impossible. 
And so God has no needs. I have no need of a bull from your stalls or a goats from your pens. Every animal in the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. You know, every bird, creatures in the fields are mine. If I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you. The world is mine. All that is in there. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? I don't need sustenance. I am of myself and for myself. And uh, I have absolutely no needs at all. Okay? You know, this distinguishes him from the other god. In fact, uh, this shows up whenever whenever you see lists of, you know, whenever these taunts uh, or comparisons of the true and living God with the gods of the nations, and uh, you know, you, you you read through it, you know, they, they they fashioned it out of wood and put gold and silver on it, and they carry it around and you know prop it up like a like a scarecrow with a cucumber patch, and and then and then it gets, you know usually there's a punchline somewhere along the way that says, but God. But the true and living God, He is the Creator of heaven and earth. That seems how they all start. He is the one who is responsible for everything else, and that seems to be a primary attribute and one of the primary distinctions between the true and living God and all other uh, wannabes in, in terms of the divine species. There's there's no one else that that qualifies. Remember when when Jonah's in the ark. Jonah's in the boat when he's going to he's not in the ark Jonah's in the boat he's going to Tarshish and the uh, and the uh, and the storm comes up all the people sacrifice their gods storm doesn't stop uh, same same kind of magical view of, of, of religion they ask okay Jonah what are you doing why are you sleeping have you sacrificed your god yet or your gods yet who do you, what God do you serve anyway? And Jonah says, well, I serve the Lord of heaven and earth, the creator of heaven and earth. And at this, they're, they're, they go ballistic. Uh, they're, they're, they're frightened beyond belief because this, this God is different. Uh, that he's from, from the rest of the gods. He's, he's, he's ase. He's independent. Okay, so that's, what we mean by the aseity of God or the independence of God, and it feeds then into the idea of the sovereignty of God. So uh, that's that's our first attribute here. Any thoughts on that one? Really, Darcy's Paul was saying he doesn't even like to be called human, you know, like humans, human beings, because we're not really beings in the sense that you know. We see, uh, I think he said something like he likes to be called becoming or something to that effect. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. Oh, you mean he doesn't like us being called beings? I see. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not sure that the implication is there, but I I, I, I appreciate the sentiment at least. <laughs> yeah. Most of, uh, as we go through these, a lot of these will have, you know, objections and qualifications that we have, but the first. The first few are, are are a little bit cleaner than that, but the, they they get they get progressively uh, a little bit more uh, exciting. So there's a few of these with the infinitude of God. So what do we mean by the infinitude of God? Well, it's the complete absence of external limitations or restrictions with respect to his person or his actions. Uh, but it also means here the idea that he is intrinsically perfect and complete in every way. When we talk about infinity, we're talking a little bit different, something a little bit different from mathematical infinity. This is, uh, this is sort of the mind-stressing comment here. Here, 
you know, where when we talk about mathematical infinities, they usually start with units and they just multiply until there's so many of them that we say that's practically innumerable and then it and and we call it an infinity. So mathematical infinities operate expansively from finite quantities to an infinite quantitative sum of finite parts. But God is qualitatively different. So it's not just a quantitative infinitude, but a qualitative infinitude in that he is different from and better than his creation. So as such, divine infinity means more than that he is omnipresent and everlasting within time and within space, it means that he actually transcends space and time. So it's not just that he fills all the space that is, he actually exists outside of space. Or that he fills all of the moments of time that that, that are, he actually exists above time and outside of time. So he's instead unrestricted in that sense by space or by time or by mental or moral deficiency and as such cannot be completely fathomed by the efforts of mankind, which sometimes use the, the term incomprehensibility. He cannot be fully known by mankind. He has only the self-imposed limits of his nature and will. So that's the only limitation that is in, on God. God himself limits himself on occasion, uh, but that's the only limit that can be placed upon God. Some we could really multiply out the text here. I've just got a few of them here. Psalm 145. Great is the Lord, most worthy of praise. His greatness no one can fathom. It's beyond our comprehension. Great is our Lord and mighty in power. His understanding has no limit. So there in the epistemological realm, he knows everything. The heavens, even the highest heaven, cannot contain you. So God creates space and fills space, but that doesn't mean he's limited by space. He existed before space was. And so he's not uh, limited in any sense by the, the creation of space. In the moral realm, your heavenly Father is perfect. Uh, Romans 11 speaks in rather glowing terms of God. Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. So those these reflect here the infinitude of God. But in this case, we do have some qualifications and uh, some objections that we want to raise here and see if we can't uh, nuance, Saj, the, uh, the, the, the term here so that uh, we're trying to say exactly what we want to. Firstly, God's infinitude does not mean that he is wholly without restriction. He most certainly is limited by his own nature and character. Uh, we, we might think that the infinitude of God means that you can never use the word can't with God as the subject. God can't do this or God can't do that because God can do anything that he wants. Well, God can't do anything at all here. Habakkuk 1.13 Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrong. So it's impossible within the infinite nature of God for him to tolerate something that is opposite his character. 
God is faithful. He can't disown himself. He can't deny himself. God can't lie. That's off limits for him because his nature is such that he is truth, and so therefore he cannot lie. We can use the word can't in the same sentence with God as the subject. Now, this, is a, this is something that it's sort of a it's an issue that's sort of uh, you know, peaking right now because a couple of uh, books are being exchanged here. Uh, Sam Storms came out with this uh, this uh, idea of, of this expansive idea of miracles and prophecies and tongues in the church, and and one of the arguments you sometimes hear against those who are cessationists like we are that that there are no miraculous gifts occurring today is well you can't put God in a box okay and that's sort of the end all argument you can't you can't you can't say God can't do something but my response to that is well God can choose to limit his own actions and his activities and tell us so uh, and so so that argument doesn't necessarily hold up yeah, I can't tell God he can't do what he wants to do. But, at the same time, it can be said that God can't do something, or won't do, do something, or doesn't do something, uh, because we have uh, we have good arguments to, to suggest that in Scripture. So, you can use can't, or don't, or doesn't, or won't, in the same sentence with God as the subject, if, in fact, it is his nature and character that inform the... The can't, won't, or his program, or his program, yes, or his program, correct? His decree, yeah, his nature and decree. So if he's decided things are going to go happen one way, uh, he's not going to change his mind in that sense. Okay, so doesn't mean that he's absolutely unbound in that sense. He binds himself in some sense. Secondly, that God is unbound by the created space-time continuum does not mean that he cannot enter into it or is or is in no sense affected by it. Uh, sometimes people would say that God God is ex-lex. Okay? What we mean is just simply outside the law. Uh, that God if, God, if God wants to, he can violate his own laws anytime he wants to, whether they be natural laws or moral laws. Uh, that he's not he's not bound to abide by the laws that he has made for others, uh, but the but the fact is the laws are an expression of his own nature and character, right? Uh, when we see the laws of God, they 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 are a reflection of who he is, and so there is a sense in which God cannot well, we know God cannot lie. Why can't he lie? Uh, because you know there's some sort of moral code out there that binds him well no because he is truth and so therefore he has laws that reflect the fact that he is truth and these laws bind him as much as they do us and so god is not ex lex and nor does this mean that he's confused when he you know we say he's outside of space and outside of time now this is actually an interesting one in uh in, remember in 2 Peter 3 uh, we find that uh, a day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is as a day to God and this is actually used by some in the, uh, in the uh, evolutionist community to say that when God talks about days he might be talking about thousands of years okay so you know so 
you know, we could really make this the, the length of the uh, the age of the universe rather elastic in that way. Uh, but recognize that's not what he means by that. It's not as though he can't distinguish between a day and a thousand years. But he does say that with, you know, as, as far as he's concerned, his relationship to time is such that a day or a thousand years doesn't mean the same thing to him as it does to us. And so it's in that context of why is God delaying so long before he comes back? And the answer is, well, you know, for God, it's not, it, he doesn't think of this as a long delay. Uh, this, it may seem that way to us, but it's, it's, it's not. And that's all the point he's trying to make. He's trying, not trying to make some sort of a statement that God just can't distinguish between days and years and millennia. He's just so obtuse he can't tell the difference between the two. Uh, so that's, so yeah. So God can, he can maneuver in a universe of space and time and he can, uh, he can, he can appear at one space and one time and talk to us. Doesn't mean that that's the totality of God standing there, uh, but uh, but He can localize Himself, condescend in that sense, in order to make Himself known to to us within this universe of space and time. Okay. So that X legs, um, you say law there, you know, you're related to the Mosaic law or some. I mean, you're talking about some sort of basic. Uh, character of God and use the term law. Yeah. I mean, obviously God can uh, change his... I mean, it seems like, you know, something right. is sinful in one dispensation and not in the other. So, what, how do you, what do you mean by the law here in relation to, say, Mosaic law? Or okay. Yeah, I, maybe I'm, I'm, I'm speaking basically in generalizations here, not, not, okay. not in specifics. Uh, so, so much of what we find in the law is an extension of its character. But, but I mean, we talk about. I mean, we as dispensationalists say you can't divide up the law into moral and civil and ceremonial. Yeah. But it, practically speaking, you can, you can right? And uh, and so the, the the moral laws that we find in Scripture do seem to be largely an extension of his nature and character. Uh, so he can't violate his own nature and character, and so for that reason, he doesn't violate the law either. Letter D here, objections. I'm not sure why objections launched out into the center of the page there, but it is what it is. There are some passages that suggest that God is limited. In Matthew 13 and Mark 6, we find statements that he did not and could not, depending on which translation and which verse you're looking at, he could not do many miracles there because of their unbelief. Okay, so it seems to imply there that, you know, because they didn't believe him, his hands were tied, he just wasn't able to do miracles. Because they didn't believe hard enough, okay. You know, the, again, this idea that if you just believe, miracles can happen. Well, that's, that's, that's <laughs> right. But probably what we see here is that the could not of Mark six five is explained by the did not of Matthew thirteen. Why couldn't he do these things? Well, it's probably a, a statement he didn't 
and couldn't because of the function of these miracles. Okay, He chose not to do miracles because of a self-imposed limitation on his miraculous energies. Uh, what do I mean by that? The, the miracles that Christ performed while he was on earth were just not done willy-nilly for anybody at any time in any place. I think that's sometimes the idea that is circulated, that you know Jesus just went around doing, you know, randomly and routinely just doing miracles all over the place without any rhyme or reason. That's that's really not what 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 he was doing. He's 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 demonstrating uh, to the Israelite community that he was the Messiah, and he does this by performing miracles uh, that are predicted of the Messiah in the Old Testament. And so he does this for the purpose of, of, of convincing them who he is. But if he runs up into a, an obtuse group who just absolutely refuses to acknowledge him or recognize him in any sense, he stops doing the miracles. Because, you know, he's not just not going to waste his energies and just, you know, just randomly do kind things. He has a purpose for this. There's purpose for his miracles, and for that reason, he's limited, but as, as Bill just mentioned here, he's limited here by his, by his plan, by, by his particular strategy in this age. Uh, he's, he's restricted, and not restricted from without, uh, but actually restricted by his own intentions and his, his own his own uh, program and plans decree. There's another verse that shows up, and especially in the King James, uh, they limited the Holy One of Israel. Speaking of the uh, Israelites in the wilderness, Hebrew term here is tava which can mean limited, but probably means something more like pained or provoked him. If that's the case, there's really no problem here. It is possible that the word limited could be used, and I think there is an explanation that works. Basically, you have the same thing uh, as the, the previous answer. You know, he's he stopped doing things for them because of their unbelief. They, re- they refused to acknowledge him. So any any of these passages that suggest God is limited are either misunderstood or uh, they are a reflection of a divine self-limitation, not something that he is restricted by, by those outside of himself. Favorite, favorite uh, uh, tactic of unbelievers here uh, is to pit the attributes of God against each other, you know, right? The paradox here of God building a rock too large for him to move. So could God build a rock that is too large for him to move? Well, if you say yes, then aha, you've denied his omnipotence. He can't can't lift a rock. But if you say no, then you say aha, you say that he's not not infinite. So so you pit pit these attributes against each other. This is a paradox that's triumphantly raised, but is rather a foolish one. Creating such a rock is wholly contrary to God's character and designs. He doesn't wish to make such a rock. Cannot be cajoled by his creatures into making such a rock, and so the whole paradox could never occur and is really irrelevant. Okay, so it's 
Uh, so don't don't let them trap you with that that paradox. Another objection that's sometimes raised is the idea that the idea of perfection is a, an attribute given to other beings, uh, such as uh, Ezekiel twenty-eight. The king of Tyre is called perfect. Uh, Noah was perfect. Okay, and so we, we find we find this. Uh, a couple of occasions here, and so what I, what I suggest here is that descriptions of creatures as perfect should be taken as statements of relative integrity, motivation, obedience, or probably best understood as ref- reflecting maturity or integrity, even simple symmetry. Sometimes you say that's a, a, a perfect circle. Uh, we're not saying that it's infinite in every sense like God uh, we're just saying it's you know it's, 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 yeah, it, it's, it's symmetrical it's exactly the way it's supposed to be uh, and so so the, the term perfect is a, has a broad connotation here the fact is God does demand holiness of men and perfection of men it's necessary for him to ask us of us uh, this, is, this is his expectation of us that we be perfectly holy even as he is but this is not to say that people are capable of such perfection. Though required of all, perfection is beyond the reach of all the non-glorified. And even in our glorified state, our holiness is not qualitatively that of God. We're, not, we're never going to be as perfect as God. Uh, we're analogically perfect in that we reflect God uh, in, in, our, in our nature and our character and such, but we're never we never arrive at that standard of perfection uh, in our own selves. So, any thoughts on that? The infinitude of God. We're going to we're going to revisit infinitude, particularly when we get to love. As I, I sort of raised that before about the, the whether God's infinite infinity, uh, God, God's love is infinite in every sense. Uh, but we'll leave that for that discussion uh, later on. Okay. Going to ask, and I forgot to before. So, as you go through these attributes, mm-hmm. uh, you're looking at it from reform, Calvinistic kind of perspective. So, I, I assume Arminians would not agree with every. I mean, when you get to the not first one, definition, right? God cannot be affected by the free acts of his creatures. Uh, assume Arminians say, yes, he can be affected, right? Yeah. Yeah, I don't know that I've ever really looked at a an Armenian systematic theology, but I assume they can would say you? that. <laughs> <laughs> There's a couple, and it's about two or three. Of them yeah, there are some. I, 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 I've never thought to do that. Yeah, but I assume they wouldn't couldn't quite agree to that. No, no, not how okay. to find it there. I wouldn't think so. I wouldn't think so. Definitely, we're going to run into some trouble with that with the next one here. The changelessness of God, or the immutable immutability of God, is sometimes called. So God's changelessness, by definition, with respect to his person, attributes, and purposes. And we add here his incapability of growth or decay in any respect. He does not improve, he doesn't learn, he doesn't grow. Uh, he's already perfect in every sense and therefore he cannot change, wouldn't want to change because any change here would be for the worse since he's already perfected God has never grown, he's never diminished, he's never learned anything, he's never forgotten anything 
He's never changed his mind about anything, although we'll have to talk about that one in a little bit. Nor has he ever lost any of his power. He is neither more or less merciful, loving, wise, truthful, etc., than he ever was. So he's changeless with respect to all of his attributes. Specifically, we find here that God's unchangeable in his purpose. I am the Lord. I have spoken. It shall come to pass. I will do it. I will not go back. I will not relent. He really lays it on thick there. He is unchangeable in his decree. The plans of the Lord stand forever. What I have said, this I will bring about. What I have planned, that will I do. Uh, any any conception of God that allows uh, the uh, some sort of contingency there, things might happen one way or another, we don't know, uh, simply don't work. He's unchangeable in his promises. God's gift and calling, and in, in context here, the promises of God uh, with respect to his people, Israel, God's gifts and call are irrevocable. They cannot be rescinded. He's unchangeable in his person. I, the Lord, do not change. Hebrews 1, though they perish, you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will roll the, roll, roll them up like a robe. Like a garment, they will Here's be changed. I found on the web for I'm sorry, change Hebrews 1, though they perish. <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to put okay, it here. Sorry. I'm trying to put in a, a verse here, and I'm, you know, I hate this Mac in the sense it's on the right, very right side. It's got that Every time you, you, you hit, you just touch over there, man, it comes off. <laughs> Sorry. Oh, man. You gonna take his laptop? I might do that. It might be a demon. No, I'm not. I think. I think. I'm sorry. The demon's the one sitting in front of it. There. Is it the demon's the one sitting in the chair? LAMs with Google. So he doesn't change with his person or with his character. God does not change like the shifting shadows. So all of these uh, are described here as unchangeable in God. But we've obviously got some some uh, objections here to raise because there do seem to be occasions in Scripture where God does change. In fact, language of change is sometimes used for Him. So what do we what do we do with these? And I have a number of these listed here. There are some texts that speak of God repenting. Relenting, being sorry, regretting. You know, Genesis six. He was sorry that he created all the people and and proposes they're all going to be destroyed. Uh, he's he says the same thing about his people, Israel, and actually regrets choosing his people and wants to kill them all and start over with Moses. You know, I mean that's that's rather blunt language there. Jonah's perhaps one of the. Uh, more surprising ones here where where God says yet 40 days and Nineveh will be destroyed and and then we find out that he changes his mind. He doesn't destroy the city, much to Jonah's chagrin. Uh, Isaiah uh, 38, God comes to Hezekiah. I think that's the one. God comes to Hezekiah and says you're going to die and Hezekiah says please, please no and that extends his life by 15 years. So there do seem to be some 
some instances here where God changes his mind. So what do we do with these? <coughs> well, some dismiss these texts as instances of what's sometimes called anthropopathism. So God's sort of condescending to us and making himself seem like one of us so that we can actually have you know some something to uh, to manipulate in our minds to think about and, and to understand in some sense. So this attributing of human emotions and emotions to God for the sake of our understanding. There's probably some truth to this idea, but there's probably more to the answer than this. Okay, and there is there are times in which God does appear like a human with some of the shortcomings that humans have so that we can understand him, so that we can talk to him, so we can interact with him. And and so uh, that it, it's not that he actually is uh, this way, but it, he appears this way for, for our benefit. A better answer, I think, though, is to recognize that God changes, follows here, God changes in his dealings and relationships with changeable men in order to remain changeless in his dispositions. Okay? Immutability does not mean immobility. Okay, so maybe we can... Jonah's perhaps one of our our better examples here, but uh, remember Jonah comes and he's got to give this message. Yet 40 days and Nineveh will be destroyed. But we know, even as he says this, that that he, he he recognizes that there's some contingency here, right? Isaiah Joel Amos over there. There it is. Remember, remember, uh, he's greatly displeased when the uh, he goes out on the out, out on the hillside and says, "Okay, I, I'm going to see what God will do." I think he has this anticipation that God might still destroy the city, and so he sits on this hillside, and the little you know the little gourd comes up and and gives him comfort, and it dies. And, and so he's 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 upset, and he's Jonah's greatly displeased, and became angry. He prayed to the Lord, chapter four, verse one, two. Oh Lord, is this not what I thought when I was still at home? This is why I was quick to go to Tarshish. Okay, so he explains here why he went to Tarshish, because he knows that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love. A God who relents from sending calamity. So, so even as he was delivering this message to the Ninevites, in forty days you will be destroyed. He knew that there was a condition attached to it, right? The condition being, if you don't repent, God is going to destroy you. And he knew this. And uh, I, I wonder sometimes whether, when he was delivering this this message, that he was deliberately clipped in the delivery of this message so that they so that they wouldn't respond. Uh, I don't know that, but uh, it's it, you know we, we always have condensed uh, sermons in the, in the Bible here. But he seems to give precious little data. In fact, when, when it comes down to it, the, uh, the king doesn't know what to do, and so they, they sort of decide to you know put on sackcloth and ashes. It says in chapter three, the king didn't know what to he. He didn't know what he should do, and so he made a royal proclamation, not knowing what to do, and uh, this is what you need to do. Because he had no idea what to do to, to, 
And so this, let's try this, and ho- hopefully God relents, and God does. And, and again, much to Jonah's chagrin. But why does God change his mind then? Well, he changes in his actions towards those people because those people themselves changed. Okay? So in order to remain consistent within his character, he actually has to change his actions when his creatures change. Okay? I mean, the same thing happens to each one of us, right? We, we all were sinners. The wrath of God abode upon us. Uh, and he was, he was, his, 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 his wrath was fixed against us. So, what changed? Well, God changed you and me so that we are become objects of his love. And for that reason, in order to be consistent with his own character, he no longer can punish us. Because he sees us through the lens of Jesus Christ. And so he, he can't, you know, express his wrath towards us in the same way. Not because he is, has changed at all in his disposition. He's still a God of wrath who despises uh, unholiness. And so... Uh, can, can we say then that uh, the Lord's emotions are being displayed at this particular time? Well, yeah, I, I think yeah, I think wrath is a disposition dis, disposition of His holiness. Okay, so so God is holy, and in the presence of sin, that holiness expresses in wrath. Take away the sin, and God's holiness expresses in reward, right? Blessing. It seems like that permeates the entire Old Testament, right? If you do this, you're going to receive. If you do evil, there's God's curse. If you do this, right, right? If you do right, here's God's blessing. Right. right. It's, it's, but it's not a change in God. But it's not a, yeah, it's a change in what we decide to do, good or evil. Right. But again, the Arminian would say it's a real change in God, and you're saying right. that it's all part of the decree. Right. That he decreed that Nineveh would repent. Then that he would forgive them. But the Armenian sees this as, no, this was a real change. Right. Right, yes. Okay. And so, letter C, and that's the point we've just made here. Many of God's announcements are conditional in nature, carrying unspoken expectations and exclusions. Uh, even though they're not listed in the scripture, we know that they're there. And finally, we have to ask, sort of a summary question here, how can a perfect God possibly change? If God changes for the better, then he wasn't perfect in the first place. If he changes for the worse, then there's no limit as to uh, what could, God could become infinitely evil at some point. So God can't change because he's already perfect. And any change would could only be negative. We also have the problem here that Bill raised earlier here, the, the pre- problem of changing standards. So, for instance, there was a law for circumcision and Sabbatarianism in the Old Testament. They're suspended, and we no longer have these uh, restrictions, these requirements laid upon us in the, in the present day. So what changed, did something change in God's character? We've already said that many of the laws here are a reflection of his character, so why do these? Why do some of these laws change? 
I say here, letter A, that God's administrative expectations change from age to age does not mean that his essential moral nature has changed. There are abiding ethical norms that don't change. However, there are changes in, say, temporal penalties for sin, which do not require changes in the nature of the sin itself. So, for instance, if God says, you do this, you die, in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament, he says nothing, or perhaps, you know, don't do this, but there's no death penalty attached to it. This is not a change in the character or nature of God. We're just we're just we're just changing uh, a penalty because of the theocratic arrangement in the Old Testament has been suspended. Uh, so God is no longer actively governing uh, the civil affairs of the good old U.S. of A. like He was governing the civil affairs of Old Testament Israel. And so that has changed. The administration has changed. But the essential nature and character of God has not changed as a result. Okay. There's also the problem of the incarnation. Did God change when he became a man? I actually hesitate to use that word became. I know there's a couple of places in the, uh, in the New Testament where becoming language is used. Uh, but most of the time when you see uh, the language of God coming in human form, there's language that's used that really sort of moves you away from that idea. So God partook of flesh. He received a body that had been prepared for him. He assumed human likeness. Okay, I, I grant John 1.14 does speak of the word as becoming flesh. Uh, but most of the time, it seems like the scripture writers take great pains to avoid that kind of language. So Christ was, the second person of the Trinity was in eternity past, and when he came to earth, he didn't, he didn't change his substance and being into a man. He didn't become, he, he didn't transmute from God into a man. He retained his full deity, and added humanity to himself. Uh, so there's there, there's no implication of change then at that point. Uh, rather, in fact, the, the language almost sounds like it's added. We don't, you know, if we, we add a coat or something, you know, put a coat on it, doesn't mean we've changed. Uh, we've simply added something to us. There's a there's a there's a difference between adding and change. And so uh, so he added the human nature to his person without any change in his deity. And this is a seminal tenet of Christology we'll talk about when we talk about the doctrine of Christ. The problem of crucifixion, likewise. Did God change when he died? Well, the answer is that God didn't die. Okay, Christ died, and in the sense that God has a human form, he perhaps experiences death death in his humanity in a way that he could not being you know strictly divine this does not mean that God died this is a, this is something that a lot of people get really confused about uh, that that somehow when 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 Jesus died on the cross that God the second person died as well uh, perhaps suggesting that there was some sort of a breach in the Trinity or the second person 
ceases to exist, is suspended uh, for for you know for three hours or three days, depending on what you're talking about on the cross or in the grave. Um, but God didn't die. Okay, God experienced death in His humanity that had been added to Him, but God did not die. We were if we if if God dies, you know, redemption's off. We're we're in, we're in big trouble if God died. God didn't die. Okay. And then finally, here we'll wrap it up here tonight. The question of a non-relational God. Open theists often will say that if God is impassive and changeless, then He can't possibly relate to us. He's a stoic, transcendent wall. You know, you can't you can't really have a conversation with Him because He doesn't interact and give and take here. I say here that God can't be independently wrought upon so as to induce passions. Doesn't mean that He's without feeling. God is a feeling God. He is an emotional God. And it's a miscarriage of the idea of impassibility to say that God has no feeling. And that God cannot change in his person or decree does not mean that he can't experience relational changes either. He grieves, he loves, he pities. Conversely, he hates and becomes angry. But none of these requires changes to his character, to his knowledge, to his decree, or his to his essence. So I I don't think that having emotions or having relationships uh, means that God is necessarily changing in any way. Okay, so all of that to say that God is mutable, infinite, and independent with respect then to the rest of his being. So we went through the first block of these tonight. Next week we'll try and hit some of these natural attributes. We'll hit your question there, Paul. Uh, talking about the uh, relationship of God to time, which is one of the uh, stickier ones to talk about. Any summary questions here that you have? Okay, we'll see you next week then.